Good evening. The House of Representatives begins the process of invoking the 25th Amendment and possibly impeach President Trump for a second time. Threats against the inauguration, the assault on democracy continues, and Governor Andrew Cuomo on the spirit of New York, as activists claim he's failing the poor. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, January 11th, 2021. The House of Representatives worked swiftly Monday to try to oust President Donald Trump from office, pushing the vice president and cabinet to act first in an extraordinary effort to remove Trump in the final days of his presidency. The process started this morning during a brief meeting of the chamber. Clerk will report the title of the resolution. House Resolution 21, resolution calling on Vice President Michael R. Pence to convene and mobilize the principal officers of the executive departments of the cabinet to activate Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to declare President Donald J. Trump incapable of executing the duties of his office and to immediately exercise powers as acting president. For what purpose does the gentleman from West Virginia rise? I object. Objection is heard. Pursuant to Section 5A1B of the House Resolution 8, the House stands adjourned to 9 a.m. tomorrow. Among the work by the House was to accept the resignation of the Sergeant-at-Arms, the official in charge of security at the Capitol last week when hundreds of invaders broke windows and pushed past guards, an attempted coup, according to many, that ended in five deaths and many injuries. As a sign the conflict is far from over and may be intensifying, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser asked the federal government to impose emergency measures designed to deal with terrorist attacks. Our goals right now uh, are to encourage Americans to participate virtually uh, and to protect the District of Columbia from a repeat of the violent insurrection experienced at the Capitol and its grounds on January the 6th. I sent a letter yesterday requesting that the president declare a pre-emergency disaster for the District of Columbia. This is necessary because the inauguration poses several unprecedented challenges that exceed the scope of our traditional planning processes. The COVID-19 pandemic and, of course, the domestic terror attack on the United States Capitol. And that's D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. In fast-breaking news, another cabinet-level official, the head of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, submitted his resignation just moments ago. He joined several other high-profile Trump appointees fleeing the White House less than 10 days before President-elect Joe Biden is sworn into office on January 20th. Even as the House was pressuring Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment by declaring Trump as incapable of carrying out his duties as president, behind the scenes, a draft impeachment resolution was in the works. It reportedly has one count, incitement of insurrection. New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says the drafting of the impeachment bill began as members were under siege by a white supremacist neo-Nazi fascist mob. The National Guard was requested by the D.C. Council and was rejected. We are talking about and we are hearing about a complete and utter lack of preparation. The chief of the D.C. Capitol Police lied to House Administration Chairwoman Zoe Lofgren about the preparations of what happened. We need to know what happened and how deep this goes. And if we do not 
And if we do not take corrective action right now, we are talking about those same potentially compromised element elements being in charge of the president's security during the inauguration. And so, you know, with with profound respect, I believe that the president's safety and the safety of the United States Congress and the, and the security of our country it, it takes precedent over the timing of nominations and the timing of, of potential confirmations. This is an immediate danger right now. This is not either the 25th Amendment or impeachment or investigating our other avenues through the 14th Amendment. These are I do not believe that any of these avenues are competitive with one another. And as New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 14th Amendment has a provision that's said to be able to uh, prevent President Trump from ever running for office again. Some Republicans are jumping on the bandwagon as well. Illinois Representative Adam Kinzinger says members seem to be the target of the invaders. I think we were very close to actually having members of Congress killed. I mean, if you see the videos and you see, you know, based that last line of defense between the floor of the House of Representatives where members were hunkered down and the young lady that came through the window, had that whole thing been breached, I mean, there would have been people in a, in a really bad, really bad shape. So this is, uh, we were blessed on the one hand to not lose any members of Congress, but we lost five people and it's disgusting. Illinois Republican Representative Adam Kinzinger, the impeachment bill reads, President Trump gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. It's a four-page impeachment bill. It continues, he will remain a threat to national security, democracy, and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. And in world news, the World Health Organization has been knocking what it calls vaccine nationalism. More than 40 rich countries that have developed vaccines while poor countries go without. Since the beginning of the pandemic, prices of necessary PPE and devices like ventilators were driven sky high as states and nations bid against each other for the precious items. Now the price of vaccines might be forced up as more and more nations begin to demand the inoculation. An example that's been in the news is how the state of Israel has been denying Palestinians on the West Bank and Gaza access to its vaccination program, one of the world's most aggressive and well-run. Amnesty International has said that denying COVID-19 vaccine to Palestinians exposes Israel's institutionalized discrimination. Amnesty said in a statement issued on Wednesday, the Israeli government must stop ignoring its international obligations as an occupying power and immediately act to ensure that COVID-19 vaccines are equally and fairly provided to Palestinians living under its occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. Separately, a group of some 200 rabbis signed a petition by the group Rabbis for Human Rights calling on the Israeli government to speed up the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines to Palestinians. The rabbis cited medieval Jewish scholar Maimonides, who wrote that it's a religious obligation to save other human beings, saying it was a moral imperative for Israel to act immediately. The co-director of Code Pink is Ariel Gold. She says Israel's withholding of the vaccine shouldn't come as a surprise. A lot of news these days about Israel being the world leader in COVID-19 vaccinations. While the U.S. has vaccinated only 2% of its population, um, Israel is celebrating that they have now given the vaccine to, oh, to more than 18% of Israeli citizens. However, what they are leaving out of this quite literally, are these 5 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza um, who 
live under Israeli military control. They live at the very whim of Israel, and yet they are not being provided with the vaccine. This is only Israel's most recent example of uh, their apartheid system, but it's an incredibly brutal one. We have Israeli settlers who are living illegally in the West Bank um, in violation of international law and in some cases even in, vi- in violation of Israeli law. And they're receiving the vaccine while their Palestinian neighbors are not. Why do we hear so little about this? Why aren't we hearing about it more? Israel is claiming that they do not have any obligation to have to vaccinate uh, because the Oslo Accords, which were signed all the way back in 1993, said that the PA is solely responsible for the health care of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. However, the Oslo Accords from over almost three decades ago were part, were envisioned as being part of a larger peace agreement. They were only an interim agreement. But that larger peace agreement, that vision never came to be. And yet in the meantime, Israel entrenched its settlement enterprise. It has been flouting international law and dodging its moral, legal and humanitarian obligations. And uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 56, is quite clear that the occupying power, which is Israel, um, is responsible for the humanitarian and, uh, and medical needs of the population that it's occupying. And by all understandings, especially given that the Oslo Accords never resulted in this larger peace agreement, um, the Oslo Accords should be superseded by uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 56, which says that Israel does have to vaccinate. Now, Israel has also responded to this by saying, well, after we vaccinate all of Israeli citizens, which they just said should happen by March, then if there's any leftovers, we'll give them to the Palestinians. If that isn't racist discrimination, I don't know what is. Ariel Gold is co-director of the peace organization, Code Pink. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Today was the State of the State Day in New York when Governor Andrew Cuomo sums up the past year and lays out his plans for the next. This may be the most important speech of its kind in the state's history as it reels under the impact of COVID and a rising tide of fascist insurrection. Here are some memorable moments from Cuomo's 45-minute speech given in a small room with a small audience of the governor's aides, a testament to the times. We are hurt, we are frustrated, we are in mourning, we are anxious. We are shocked that an invisible enemy could wreak such death and destruction, especially in this, the wealthiest and most powerful nation on earth. And it was not only the virus itself that showed our vulnerabilities, it's that COVID created low tide in America. And the ugliness that lurked below the surface was exposed and became visible for all to see. The racial divisions, the religious tensions, the government incompetence, the health care disparities, the social injustice, and the danger of hateful leadership. In New York, we experience all of it. But in other ways, New York's state of the state is different. Because New York is different. Our DNA is different. Our character is different. What COVID did to us is different. 
We must seize the opportunity to make New York the global leader in the long overdue economic shift to green energy. That is the smart thing to do. That is the right thing to do. And it will create thousands of good, secure jobs. We must address the systemic injustices exposed during this year's low tide in America. The inequity, the racism, and the social abuse. Most pressing for the immediate future, we must vaccinate all New Yorkers. It is a massive undertaking and much greater than anything this nation has done to date. We are expanding today our distribution system to include thousands of outlets. But the federal vaccine supply must increase. Over the past four years, Washington took even more funding from New Yorkers as a sheer exercise of political extortion. Today, New York subsidizes 42 other states. On top of that, the new federal SALT provision has cost New York $30 billion more over three years. It increased property taxes on hardworking New Yorkers $2,600 per year. Look at the gross injustice. The infuriating irony is that New York subsidizes those states' lower rates. When COVID ambushed New York and we went from one case to hundreds of cases in a matter of days, when sirens filled the night stillness and mass graves were dug on Hart Island, when fear gripped New Yorkers like a vice, when the global experts told us there was no way we could slow the spread. But New Yorkers said, yes, we could. And yes, we would. And they wouldn't give up. And New Yorkers united. And they rose to the occasion. That is New York at her best. Over the last year, when forces were trying to convince this country that the strongest four-letter word is hate, New York showed that the four strongest four-letter word is love, and that love wins every time. There is an indomitable power in our New York credo. The strength of one people, black, white, brown, Asian, upstate, downstate, straight and gay, all pulling in one direction. It is unbeatable, undeniable, and undebatable. We say it in our state seal in just three simple, beautiful words, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And we know the direction we are all headed. We are all headed up. It is our state motto, excelsior. Governor Andrew Cuomo, an old friend of the governor, is former legislator and current Democratic leader for New York County, Keith Wright. He says it was a good speech, but he noted the mayor barely kept his temper discussing the assault on the Capitol. Listen, the governor has been an absolute leader, I guess, during these difficult times. And he's got a real quandary. How does he maintain the budget? but keep New York moving forward? And how do you navigate these perilous healthcare times that we're in. And I think he's doing the best that he can. He's trying to raise money with the legalization of marijuana and certainly with sports betting. One could make the argument that marijuana has always been 
kind of legal in a way, and as as sports betting, but I think it's a good way to raise revenue. And this is a governor that likes to build things, and he's trying to keep the um, infrastructure movement forward. It's almost like you don't want anything or anybody to take you away from your normal activities, and he's trying to adapt as well as he can to these perilous times and continue to move government and to move New York forward. I thought it was a good speech. I've sat in on like at least 27 of these speeches before, and I think this is one of his better ones. He quoted his father in the speech. You got to look at the psychology of the governor and his father. This is a guy that revered, absolutely revered his father, and he will usually try and find a way to, to weave Mario Cuomo in, and I remember Mario Cuomo. He was quite a formidable man. What makes this doubly unusual, besides being in the midst of a uh, once-in-a-century pandemic and the possibility right. he raised of future pandemics, right. that this is going to become right. more of a normal because of changes in the way we live, that's enough right there. But the other thing is we had an outright assault on democracy, which hasn't been seen, I've heard some experts say, 200 years spearheaded by the president. How do you think he handled that unusual aspect of all of this? I think he was probably very restrained in a lot of ways. I don't think any of us have seen this outright assault on the capital of the United States. Someone made the analogy that the last time there was an attack on Washington like this was in the War of 1812. And I think the governor made his point. And of course, he was very angry, like we all are. But I think he was kind of restrained in a lot of ways. And he's going to probably let the federal government handle it the way that they're going to handle it. You know, everybody's angry. I can only imagine if the similar insurrection was put forth in Albany. Listen, I served in Albany for 24 years. They were there. There was a group up there on that same day. Yeah, they were. I heard they were there. Right. There was a stabbing. But, you know, and Absolutely. Absolutely. These places are sacred ground in a lot of ways. It's there to change people's lives for the better and to an outright assault on our on our capital, the United States, should make people very, very angry. So I actually think he was kind of restrained knowing the governor the way I've known him for all these years. And that's Democratic leader for New York County, Keith Wright. But not everyone was happy with the governor's speech. The coordinator of Housing Justice for All is Sia Weaver. She says the governor talks the talk when it comes to housing, but he's really in the pocket of the landlords. The governor announced that he was going to be waiving late fees for renters impacted by COVID-19. I think that that being the governor's solution to the back rent crisis is a cruel joke and that we really needed to see a program to cancel rent in this in the state budget and we haven't seen it yet why what sounds good isn't really that good there was a lot that we didn't hear today in the state budget address right we didn't hear anything about relief for struggling renters and mom and pop landlords we didn't hear anything about a plan to end homelessness and so absent those things i think the governor's really been asleep at the wheel for the covid 19 housing crisis he did talk about getting people into shelters, and he talked about ending evictions and helping small businesses. He made a lot of statements like that. We don't want 
to have people living in shelters. We want to, people to have permanent housing. The governor's statement on evictions is really about waiving late fees and letting people use their security deposit to pay rent. People haven't paid rent for 10 months. Late fees and security deposits is a joke. What does that tell you about this governor? Governor Cuomo needs to do a lot more to represent the tenants of New York. He has long and historic ties to the real estate industry. And the truth is, is the current housing situation isn't good for Rebney and it's not good for tenants. And there needs to be a different way to do this. What would you like to see him do and what's your plans? We need Governor Cuomo to tax New York's wealthiest, something he said that he would not do today and use those resources to clear the back rent. We're going to be working with tenants across New York State to make that happen in the coming months. He said that increasing taxes and all these, he listed a whole bunch of things. He said add it all up, it still would leave us billions and billions of dollars in the hole. I don't think anyone disagrees with the governor that federal action is needed, but he needs to stop using that as an excuse to do nothing himself. Sia Weaver is coordinator of housing justice for all and the director of Align, the Alliance for Greater New York, is Maritza Silva Farrell. Her group represents essential workers. They're supporting the HERO Act in the state legislature that's being sponsored by Senate Deputy Majority Leader Mike Janaris of Queens and Assembly Member Karen Reyes of the Bronx. The bill would require businesses to implement specific public health standards intended to protect their employees from COVID. As Silva Farrell adds, the governor needs to get more specific. Frankly, we have been concerned that at this particular moment, we are 11 months almost in this pandemic, and we have still not had a specific law in place that will protect workers in the workplace at this moment. Essential workers uh, face the same risk from COVID-19 as they did months ago, um, and there has not been a strong mandatory standards and enforceable standards for workers to be able to do their work. So uh, what we're asking here is just uh, guidelines and, and good thoughts are good, uh, but ideally we need to make sure that the governor has in place a law that would ensure that workers are protected in the workplace. That's the best way to really give essential workers what they need. This is all throughout the country. You hear the same kind of thing, whether it's meatpacking plants or farm workers in Florida or meatpacking plants in Iowa. The main cause, we're getting to know, science is beginning to understand the main cause of the spread of disease are people who are quote-unquote essential workers who have to go to work or being required to go to work. And those people tend to be people of color over and over again. When we build a coalition, we were very clear about the importance of thinking about how to protect workers in their workplace as the number one thing. And the only way to do it is specifically by having standards and enforceable mechanisms. And frankly, workers know what workers need, and they can actually create this health and safety standards in the workplace. We know, for example, we have this new infection strain coming with this virus. And it's actively circulating here in New York. So if you go to the grocery store and the grocery store person does not have the equipment necessary to be able to work in the workplace, they don't have hand sanitizers, they don't have protections in the workplace, we know that that's going to be creating a ripple effect in the communities. We must ensure that we create those standards through the legislative process. And we are urging Governor Cuomo today 
to ensure that that happens in New York so that we can continue being the example for other parts of the country. Uh, but right now we're not. Right now we're seeing a lot of cases upstate in different places that we don't even know sometimes. And yes, it's true. Black and brown communities have been the most affected here. Uh, the last data I reviewed was about 30,000 workers or so, and communities of color have been affected. So if we really want to do something for communities of color and workers in the essential workers industry, we really need to make sure that we have a mandate in place through the legislation that we introduced last week with Senator Genaris and Assemblywoman Reyes. And this legislation really gets to the core of these issues that you're talking about. What's it called, the legislation? The legislation is called the New York Here Act, is the way in which we see a solution put in place for workers to have the standards. And therefore, you're not only protecting the workers, you're protecting the communities where they work, as well as businesses. With the closure of so many businesses, you know, they are impacted. So if businesses want to thrive and continue to just provide services in whichever form is, is safe, we ought to make sure that this law is put in place. Marissa Silva-Farrell is director of Align, the Alliance for Greater New York. And finally, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris has landed on the cover of the February issue of Vogue magazine, but her team says is a problem. The shot of the country's soon-to-be number two leader isn't what both sides had agreed upon, her team says. Instead of the powder blue suit Harris wore for her cover shoot, the first African-American woman elected vice president is instead seen in more casual attire and wearing Converse Chuck Taylor sneakers, which she sometimes wore on the campaign trail. Harris's team was unaware that the cover photo had been switched until images leaked Saturday according to a person involved in the negotiations over how Harris would be featured on the cover. Harris's office declined comment and the person spoke Sunday on condition of anonymity. In a statement, Vogue said it went with the more informal image of Harris for the cover because the photo captured her authentic approachable nature, which we feel is one of the hallmarks of the Biden-Harris administration. And that's some of the news for Monday, January 11th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City for the WBAI News. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.